VA Health and Benefits, official mobile app for VA Health and Benefits. VA's official mobile app is a smarter, more convenient way for veterans to manage and carry their VA Health and Benefits information. One veteran notes, I went into my local hardware store and logged into my VA mobile app. A quick glance at my phone showed them I was a veteran and I was able to get the veteran discount without any paperwork. It was easy and convenient. Download the app via the Apple Store at https colon forward slash forward slash apple dot co forward slash three uppercase j lowercase b lowercase k nine uppercase o lowercase l or download the app via the Google Play Store at https colon forward slash forward slash bit dot ly forward slash 3 uppercase q 5 lowercase q 9 uppercase l 5
in uh, Durham, North Carolina, and I was working full-time during the day as a victim advocate for the sexual harassment assault and response program uh, for Special Operations Command during the day. So I was a full-time victim advocate going to law school at night, uh, driving from Fayetteville to Durham, which is a two-hour drive, three nights a week to get my law degree. <laughs> for four, So I did that for four years. Um, I graduated on time. I passed the bar the first time out the gate, but I've been in the advocacy field for about the last 20 years. Um, I started out at the collegiate level where I would, um, I'm, I'm originally from outside of Chicago, so I went to Northern Illinois University and I would train about 20,000 incoming freshmen each year on the risks of sexual violence on campus and then the resources available to them. Um, from there, I commissioned into the military as an officer. I was in the Signal Corps, so I like to say I earned my PowerPoint Ranger tab there. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I've been advocating for service members uh, and civilians for a very, very long time. And so when I was in service, there was no SHARP program, there was no SAPR program, there were no resources for military sexual trauma survivors. So essentially, as like the token female in my unit, I would handle those cases as they came in and try to help provide them resources and get them some kind of redress. Um, all of those things that I was doing later became codified into the sexual assault response program that the military stood up shortly after I got out of service. Um, and then after I got out of service, of course, that I was continuing to advocate for service members in a civilian capacity. I did that at Fort Bragg for a number of years um, until I was ultimately terminated for doing so. Uh, what I found was that um, almost all of my clients were being retaliated against for reporting their sexual assault. And I believed that the system could be fixed from within. So uh, I would initially report that they were being retaliated against. Command would be like, oh, Lindsay, you're just not, you just don't understand how things work. And that's not how we do things here. You got to follow this process. And so I just was being gaslit and just riding with it, to be honest. I was like, oh, okay, let me go back and learn my job better. Let me become a better employee. Let me better understand the processes. But that's but over time, I just realized it was just it was gaslighting and a whole lot of nonsense. So I was essentially fighting with command for a few years, um, trying to get some redress for my clients, um, and it all came to a head when I reported that Delta Force was covering up rape in a really big way. And so, you know, if your listeners want to Google my name in the Rolling Stones, a guy named Seth put a great article on it. But uh, long story short, they had enough of me, and they uh, they they fired me. So from there, I, I stood up combat sexual assault so I could continue to provide the same services and really more arguably better services now that I'm out and I'm not, you know, I don't have to worry about my paycheck coming from the military. I, I can do this all in-house and not, they can't retaliate against me as a, as a civilian, although I'm sure they, they would like to. It's just strange to me. And, and, and you know, I've talked to MST victims on Oscar Mike radio. Um, I didn't know any when I was in the Marine Corps, but, uh, you know, you hear stories about males and females being impacted by this. I guess my first question would be the, the military and the army and the Marine Corps, all four branches have this mantra of no man left behind and your leadership will take care of you. So the mission can get done except for this and it just seems paradoxical if that's even a word if you understand my meaning that 
they say this with one side of their mouth and then do the exact opposite when it comes to this. What's the reason why, in your opinion, in your experience? Well, I mean, the short answer is because they're complicit, but, you know, the longer answer, you know, we've got one in every four women and one in every six men have been sexually assaulted, right? And so arguably, you know, with those statistics, there are more men in service that have been sexually assaulted than women, right? Because there's just more men serving than women. But when you have a sexual assault in your in your footprint, let's say, right? You know, the commander and the sergeant major for our listeners who may not be, you know, prior service are, you know, like the mom and dad of the unit, right? Like they are in charge of all the day-to-day operations for these service members. Are, are they being housed? Are they being clothed? Are they being taken care of? Are they showing up to work? All of those things. So even in best case scenario, like if I've got a great, great leaders, a great mom and dad, uh, they're invested in those lives of the soldiers. But mom and dad are also in charge of good order and discipline, right? And, and UCMJ and prosecuting these folks. So what happens when mom and dad finds out that one of their kids is sexually assaulting another one of their kids? So what happens is even in the best case scenario is it gives that parent a moment of pause, right? Because they don't want to believe that their kid that they have invested so much in is doing that and certainly not to one of their other kids. And so, and it's in that moment of pause where our concern lies. So if you've got, you know, somebody, a bad actor, so to speak, uh, rather than a good actor, then they're going to try to sweep that under the rug. They don't want to have that rolling around. And we see that actually in a lot of lives of just an average American who isn't serving, right? Like there may be sexual assault within a family and they just don't want to deal with it. And the other thing we see from a lot of commanders is they take it like personally, like it's a failure on them in their unit that sexual assault is occurring as opposed to, you know, noticing that this is a bad actor and then actioning that bad actor. It would be amazing if the military would treat sexual violence the same way that they did or they do with like DUIs, you know, because when I was in service, you know, it was a huge deal to get a DUI. And I remember if, if some of the soldiers that got DUIs, they'd have to stand on connexes and recite the Army Creed and all kinds of things when they got a DUI. And then they were you know, getting kicked out and things like that. But they had, they came with like a very heavy zero tolerance policy for drinking and driving. Um, but with sexual assault, it's just not the case. And I think something that the military is going to have to really reckon with is how they have been complicit in sexual violence for, for many, many years. So I'm in North Carolina. I'm not too far from Fort Bragg. You know, back in the day, you know, they used to have like officers clubs and non-commissioned officers clubs. Now they're kind of just like at Fort Bragg, it's just the Fort Bragg Club. But the Fort Bragg Club, when it was the officers club or non-commissioned officers club, you know, they had, um, the servers there were topless. So this, so so when you're looking, and, and so the, when, when, the, when these topless women were serving on post, this was in the era that let's say General Milley was rolling up through Fort Bragg as, as a, um, maybe as like a as first or second lieutenant. And so when you kind of see it in that light, like, okay, this is how they, how this generation of leaders in our country now were treating women, you know, back in their early days, it can, it really comes as no surprise that a lot of these senior leaders kind of have a sense of entitlement, right? Like they're not terribly excited that women are serving beside them. And, and we're just not 
equal and then our male counterparts you know like they're also being sexually assaulted but they our male counterparts see how our female female counterparts are being treated and they know they don't even stand a chance so you know the barriers for a male to report sexual violence are completely different than a, the barriers our females um face but but arguably arguably they're just as bad if not worse um not trying to create a misery index, of course, but certainly don't want to overlook the plight of our male service members who are trying to report a sexual assault. Sorry, mm -hmm. Travis, I know that was a lot. I don't mean to leave you speechless. Well, well, <laughs> well, no, I'm trying to articulate my next, you know, question statement here is, wouldn't it be a show of strength to say, hey, we are demanding accountability of your actions. We're going to be transparent about it. And we're going to take a very zero, uh, you know, because talking to one, one guest I had on, Keith Phillips talked about his experience in the Navy. Lakeidra Houston talked to me about her experience in the Air Force. And the one thing that, that I wanted to ask you about is they both said that the, 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 the act itself was, hard enough but they felt betrayed by their leadership and that stuck with them worse than anything else do, do people that you've advocated for communicate that to you oh that's that's all they communicate to me and and so even by like the department of defense's own numbers um the department of defense is even reporting that so every year the you know the reporting of sexual assault is going up and so like just recently, I think it went up about 26% um, across service branches, which is a huge increase just in the last year or so. But like what the military will say is, you know, these this increase in reporting is is a good sign. It means people are more comfortable reporting. Um, but, I, you know, sadly, that's not the case because DOD is also reporting that uh, more and more service members are reporting that they've been retaliated against for reporting. So the retaliation numbers are on a sharp incline. You know, when they first started counting this, it was like 50, 52, and now it's like 60, 64% of all service members who report sexual assault are reporting retaliation. So, you know, when the military comes out and says, okay, you know, the increase in numbers is, is great, um, it's because people are more comfortable, that's just not the case, because if it were the case, we would see the numbers in retaliation plummeting and that's not what we're seeing and so i guess getting back maybe to your question it just i mean i'm with you it doesn't make sense why commanders wouldn't just immediately action it that that seems like the easiest solution to this problem um and that's why it's kind of like baffled so many advocates for so long because because we were like you could just get rid of this e5 or e6 you know, or whatever the rank their your officer, or whatever the rank of this perpetrator is, and just process, you know, and prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. Um, but the military just doesn't seem to have an appetite for that, and I and I argue that the, that the appetite for that starts at is is from the top, because um, as I'm kind of like you know going up the chain and reporting all of these inconsistencies, or how there's or how sexual assault is being swept under the rug, or how they're not believing survivors. I'm getting the most resistance from our most senior leaders. And if they just took an opportunity to hold even just a, a couple of these folks accountable, then that that would have a sweeping impact across all branches of service. You know, like, you know, if I, I can, if a 
it's, yeah, it's, well, it's, it's, so it's mind numbing to me because it's, 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 it's actually not that hard. <laughs> well, let's just take when I first showed up to Yuma in my unit, first lamb, a pair of, a couple pairs of NVGs went missing. Each night vision goggle costs about $2,000 a piece back then. And what happened was a gunnery sergeant took the hit for that and he had to retire. Make no mistake, that sent a message to the entire base of what happened when gear was adrift, that one incident. And it's weird that we can get, I mean, get CID and NCIS all involved with a pair of missing night vision goggles, but lack the appetite for cases like Denisha. So that's a question for a different time I want to unpack with you, but Bringing you into Denisha Montgomery now, Lakija reached out to me about this story. And, you know, I, I had talked to Lakija, I talked to Heath Phillips, I talked to another uh, MMST, you know, victim survivor. And, you know, we had um, the, the Gomes family in Brockton dealing with this, where something happened to this soldier and the Army was less than forthcoming. So why is Denisha Montgomery's case so unique and, you know, What's what's driving you to really grab hold of this one? Yeah, I mean, sadly, Denisha's case is almost predictable at this. Really? Uh, where I, I mean, so the military's own data predicted that this would occur essentially. So what we've got, you know, the long and short of Denisha's case is Denisha uh, was a military police officer, and um, she reports that she is assaulted and strangled by four other military police officers. And then 21 days later is found dead and the military immediately rules it a suicide. Um, so the, the unit that uh, Denisha is in, she's with the 16th Military Police Brigade. Um, this unit was busted uh, earlier this year um, for selling drugs out of their patrol car on Fort Bragg. So, 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 so this is why I say it was predictable. And and you can just go ahead and Google, you know, Google the 16th Military Police Brigade and and you know and you can and find all of their shenanigans if you will but what we also know under the wake of the death of vanessa Guillen is you know the you know president biden commissioned the independent review commission um under lynn rosenthal there's a, a an extensive report done into fort hood into cid and those reports did not paint cid in a very favorable manner so what what we know just you know just from the military's own data in the last year is that we've got some very, very systemic failures within our military police brigade and within CID. And now I've got an MP from this same brigade who has reported that she's been assaulted by four other military police officers um, and then winds up dead. And then rather than the military, you know, conducting a full and thorough investigation after they've already been made aware of all of these other things that the military police brigade and CID has done wrong in the last year or more, they immediately rule it a suicide. So the whole thing is concerning and that's, and that was our concern out the gate. Um, yeah. So what you got, Travis? I'll, I'll. Well, well. So, <laughs> yeah. We, we I, I've talked about it, and, and you know, Amy and Akija are, are are following up on this, and you know, it struck me as odd too, with with things like Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement, with other things that happen 
in the corporate world, um, I, you know, I can't get into what my employer does, but I do know that as a manager, if a staff member comes to me with this kind of a problem, it's handled completely differently. So it's almost like, you know what, we're not, we're going to hide this. So it goes away. There was like a, a minute clip on Fox News down there in Georgia when they brought her back, I think is, is where I got it from. And you've heard nothing about this. So you've taken this on, you know, you want to keep her memory in the forefront and keep her memory alive. You know, what's, what are you all trying to do at this point with this situation? Well, we're trying to, at, at this juncture, we're trying to get the FBI to take over this case immediately. So, you know, out the gate, we had concerns that, the, that you know, as I said before, with CID and uh, the MPs. Uh, so one of the things we did out the gate is we, once we learned that the video existed, so on July 19th, um, Denisha calls her family frantically um, talking about the assault about the other four military police officers in the vehicle. She asks her family to record the call. We have, she, she does, the family provides us with that recording. Um, it's very disturbing to watch. She's showing the injuries on her body. She's, she's bruised and beaten. She's talking about how she can't breathe. Um, and so us believing that the military police and CID were compromised in Germany, we immediately elevated it to CID headquarters um, at Quantico. So we sent them the, uh, the video and the evidence that we had in hopes that we could elevate it out the gate and that the military would then, uh, investigate it and, and take it seriously. Uh, but sadly that's not, we, we don't have any indication that that's occurring. After we provided them that video, they interviewed a couple of family members. One of the people that was in the vehicle with Denisha, that Denisha accuses of assaulting her, uh, then starts to reach out to a family member. Uh, we reach out to CID and say, hey, CID, this person that we believe who, is, who may be involved in her death and was certainly involved with assaulting her on July 19th is reaching out to a family member. Maybe you want to investigate that. Or, hey, do you want to like do a pretext call and maybe record it so maybe you can gather some intelligence from this person? We can all sit down together with a family member and all of that. And so CID declined to do any of that. And so for 30 days, this person was continuing to reach out to this family member um, with CID not running down any of those leads. Uh, during this time, CID interviews Denisha's spouse, Josh. And, you know, I take Josh down to be interviewed. And the questions that CID had for him were just around Denisha's mental health. It was, you know, has she ever had any prior suicidal ideations? What was her, what was she like the last time you talked to her and things like that, which are reasonable questions, but they already had the video at that point. And they had already seen Denisha talking about the assault 21 days prior. And for them to not to, to think that those might be linked in any kind of way, or at, or at the very least, if even if they're not linked, why wouldn't you want to know about you know, alleged assaults by four other military police officers on another one of your military police officers. And so during that interview, they didn't ask questions about the video, even though they had it, had the video by then. So all these were kind of like indicative to us very, very early on that the military was not taking this seriously and, and was not trying to investigate any other avenue 
other than suicide, which again, I, I, I say is, is predictable for this first CID and the 16th MPs because that's what the data shows us. That's what the, C, the Fort Hood report shows us. That's what the IRC shows us. So it's not unreasonable for us to want the FBI to come in. And so kind of as we're going through that, right, and we're trying to explain to the military why we're concerned, why we think they're not doing a full and thorough investigation, we bring up these concerns then to the 18th Airborne Corps Commanding General, Deputy Commanding General, Major General Menez. And so we outline all of that for him as well, point by point. And so his uh, response to us is that he's got full faith and confidence in the special agent in charge in Wiesbaden. And so my response to him was, well, like, listen, like, you know, I live in North Carolina. And if I have got a client who is being, let's say, uh, has got an investigation in, in the jurisdiction of Fayetteville, which is outside of Fort Bragg, and I feel like the Fayetteville police are sweeping this under the rug and not conducting a full and thorough investigation, um, they're not running down leads, you know, things are fishy, just whatever. I, I can just go down to the police chief and I can explain that to her and she will action that concern. Maybe that goes to the state attorney general, maybe that goes to internal affairs, but there are mechanisms in the civilian justice system to ensure that these these bad apples and perhaps bad cops or, or, or incompetent law enforcement officials or whatever the case may be is actioned. Right. But in the military, there's no such process. And that's why the call for the FBI to take the case, because we just do not have nobody is policing the police. And so if I've got a cop, a dead cop that was assaulted, who reports that she was assaulted by four other cops 21 days before she died, and I've got the same kind of military police and CID agents in the same kind of location doing the investigation, that should be extremely concerning to the American public, right? At the very least, it, should, it needs to be taken out of that, that AO, that area of operations, and maybe put somebody who's got much more experience in charge of that. And not to kind of keep beating this dead horse, if you will, but, you know, in Denisha's unit, for example, in her military police unit, her command sergeant major, um, is an MP, but his last duty station was as the CID special agent in charge in Wiesbaden. So, you know, another line Major General Menez is trying to feed to us is that, you know, somehow that the MPs and the CID are separate organizations, but that's just not the case. They cross-pollinate, right? So MPs will work as batch orders at CID and vice versa. And, you know, by way of example, the command sergeant major of Denisha's unit just came from CID in that same location. So, so here, you know, as we're kind of going back to the lack of accountability and leadership, there is an, we're starting to see an incentive to why the military may not want to do a full and flat thorough investigation, because it's going to Im implicate more than, than just, let's say these four other MPs that Denisha alleges assaulted her in the vehicle on July 19th and that's not a narrative that they want to even yeah. even address lindsay last question i have for you in our time together and certainly we'll be talking more as time goes on is right now what can our fellow americans service members and veterans do to help you all when i say you all it, it, it is you it is lakidra it is amy and the people who are surrounding you their family to, to help you all right now? What can we do? 
right now we're, we're wanting them to just really help amplify our voice. So as much as they can share on social media what's going on with Denisha, that would be very, very helpful. Um, unfortunately, it's like we have to sell this action to get anything anything changed. So, that, so that's what they can do to start. Uh, we would also encourage them them to reach out to their congressional leaders and ask them, you know, what's going on and how are they assisting with this case. Uh, and then if they've still got some some juice in their tank, they can come on to any of our websites and donate. So that way we can help fund this action even further. They can go on to they go on to our websites. They can also find a direct link to the GoFundMe page for the family. They can do donate directly to the family. But what we really need is amplification. We need them to share social media posts that we want we want everybody to be talking about Denisha and wanting to know what is going on and get the FBI involved so that we, we, we can learn what really happened to her. Well, Lindsay, this will air around uh, Veterans Day uh, a, a month from now. And my promise to you is I will continue to uh, share your posts, make posts, and I'm going to commit to writing every member of Congress and state representative from my state to do this. And I'm probably going to do it every month until I get a response back. Um, you know, Stephen Lynch is a supporter of veterans. I would like to get his input on this. So that is my promise to you all. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I hope we can talk again soon. And I definitely want to have you back on as this case progresses. And thank you so much for sharing so openly about this. Mm -hmm. Thank you again. I want to thank you for joining me and watching Oscar Mike Radio. Now go to OscarMikeRadio.com and click shop to check out all the cool merchandise from Authentically American. All proceeds go to veteran service organizations. We are Mission in Flight.